You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you're uh, happy and well this morning. And uh, it may not be morning. You may be watching from somewhere else or at some other time, but a uh, good day to you. And uh, just happy to, to have you all together today and joining in worship uh, on this, uh, this morning. Um, we're going to continue in our series in the book of First Peter. And uh, if you've been follow- following along these last few weeks, uh, you know that we've been uh, studying about the churches uh, that Peter has written to, how they're dealing with trials, and Peter's been encouraging them to stay strong in their faith and to, to recall the example of their Lord. Um, he says they're going through grief and all kinds of trials. Uh, but he reminds them that these trials shouldn't be surprising or defeating. After all, the founder of their faith and ours uh, had to suffer in order to see God's will implemented. Uh, we get wrapped around the axle on the idea of suffering because none of us likes to suffer. Uh, suffering means something is wrong. Something is wrong means it needs to get fixed, and hopefully God will fix it, but by golly, if he won't, I will. Or sometimes it just means we're so discouraged by something being wrong that we, we feel despair. This COVID thing, the longer it goes and the fewer solid facts we have and the less able we're able to predict what the future will look like really can lead us to despair. But Peter reminds Christians in the letter that these trials are meant to refine our faith which, as he puts it, is of greater worth than gold. And more than that, the trials present opportunities for Christians to be the light of the world, to show God's love and let his ways shine through us. Unlike the trials we find ourselves in uh, right now with COVID, along with the entire world, Peter was not speaking about natural disasters or illnesses or a bad economy. He was speaking about trials due to the Christians' profession of their faith, persecution because they were Christians. Dave shared in the first week of this series, many lessons transfer over to the trials that we face with COVID, because all of these can work together to strengthen our faith and build our resilience. Today, my assignment is chapter five, and we're going to look at some godly leadership. We're going to consider opportunities presented by God's upside down approach uh, to relationships and trying times. And then we're going to go over a practical checklist of ways that we can do our part in implementing God's will here on earth. Uh, And then finally after that, we'll talk a little bit about Memorial Day and then go to communion right after that. So let's say a prayer and jump into the lesson. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can open up your Bible and we can look at your word in a tremendous amount of faith and confidence. Father, we know that you wrote these to our brothers and sisters who suffered much more challenging things than we do. And uh, we know that you've had great hope and vision and direction for them, God, to stay strong in their faith, to look to you even with the trials around us. Help us, God, to see you in this. Help us to see how you're working in our lives right now and help us to have faith, faith that's of greater worth than gold. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, First Peter chapter five, and we'll start in verse one. Peter writes to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings who are all, uh, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock under your, that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing. 
as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. You know, Peter historically was so much more than an elder. He was an apostle. He was probably the leader of Jesus' first followers and certainly the spokesman among the 12. Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom, but he doesn't hold that over anybody. Instead, he claims only to be a fellow elder and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. I want you to note that because Peter's actually demonstrating some of the things he's going to share to the Christians about how they should live. He's demonstrating humility. He says, be shepherds of the flock under your care. And it's an interesting choice of metaphor. He doesn't say be captain of the ship or general of the army, supreme leader of the congregation. There's no charge to whip your people into shape or bring them into line, but only be shepherds. I don't know a lot about the work of a shepherd. I grew up in the city, but I have noticed that there are no shepherd award shows. There's no college draft for shepherds on on ESPN this year. There's no election season for shepherds. It's not meant to be a glamorous role. It's a humble role. It's a service role. It's a sometimes unseen and forgotten role. But that doesn't mean it's an unimportant role. Shepherd leaders are expected to bear and use their responsibility for the good of the church. But it's a role to be approached with a willing spirit rather than out of a self-important sense of duty or a self-promoting obligation from on high. It is not a role you enter for a quick buck or see what you can extract for your own ego, but a role of giving with eagerness, being on your toes to meet needs and solve problems. And it's a role founded on what you can demonstrate to others, not what you demand of them. And finally, it's a role that has a crown of glory awaiting, but only in the next unseen world. In other words, a deferred reward. Aren't you glad that God set up this as the model for leadership in his church? Not leading through power and authority, but leading from somebody who's not self-focused or self-promoting. As one who serves in this role, I am keenly aware of the challenge of this calling. I'm continually striving to live up to it. Its lessons are grace in my life. At times, I've failed to shepherd well. You probably know that. Sometimes, I don't want to serve. God knows that. But these weaknesses humble me, and they keep me rooted in my relationship with God. And out of that comes strength and resilience. You know, there's a tremendous benefit to responding to a calling like this. And I'd encourage all of you with interest, and you brothers in particular, to ask yourself how God might be calling you to roles of leadership and stewardship in the church. I'm so grateful for our deacons, for our small group leaders, for all of those who've taken roles of service in the ministry. But we need more elders. We need more servants. We need more deacons. And I just encourage you to dig deep in your relationship with God and see what he might be saying to you about uh, elevating your sights in the way that you serve to these roles of leadership. So the verse was certainly addressing the office in the church, but these are principles that can be applied to leaders of all kinds. Fathers and mothers, bosses, supervisors, heads of households, small group leaders. What leadership role are you in? 
how can you apply these principles to what you do at your work, in your home, in your family? Have you brought some worldly ideas of leadership with you into your roles of leadership in those places? God calls us to a different kind of leadership than the world teaches us. We're meant to be servant leaders. We're meant to be hardworking in it for the people we serve and not for ourselves. And then he addresses the younger folks, the followers, the flock, and he asks them to submit those to, them, to themselves to those in those roles. And that command, of course, is followed by a quick appeal that each of us drapes ourselves with humility because God will oppose you if you don't. Being a follower is no easy task, especially when you're young and you're excited and you're bursting with ideas and dreams and plans and you have just enough knowledge to be dangerous. Please don't think for a minute that your energy and your ideas are not needed and important. But in your conversations, let humility be your companion and pride your warning. Ask yourself, am I suggesting or demanding with my tone and attitude? Think about your leader's job and ask, what would make me easier to shepherd? How can I be a joy and a blessing to those God has put over me in the Lord? You know, this, this relationship between leaders and followers can be really, really good, and it can be really, really strained. And those of us in the church are familiar with these themes. But this theme of servant leadership and submissive, submissive following was totally foreign to the people that these Christians lived among in the first century. These were Roman people. These were people raised in that environment. Uh, it was absolutely contrary to the culture of their day. Roman leadership was built on might and strength and the ability to conquer and rise above the rest. Followers, soldiers, civilians, were fodder unless they could fight their way or fast talk their way up the food chain. To lead was to rule for your own gain and glory with every generation eager to usurp their fathers. But Peter offers a contrast for how Christian leaders and followers should behave and the blessings that come with it. And we see that this is the last in several uh, parts of the book that he takes to talk about how our relationship should be different than the culture teaches us to be, the culture around us teaches us to be. Um, it's a pattern in Peter's letter. He specifically and repeatedly addresses key ordered relationships to demonstrate how we are called to rise above the social norms for a higher purpose. He sets a standard of living and relating to others for Christians that is different from those who are still on the throne of their own lives. And the contrast to that standard shouts louder than any sermon ever could. Out of it comes a blessing, an unexpected sense of reward and the step forward of God's kingdom coming to earth. We see households and communities being built instead of torn apart. Consider the verses here and look for the contrast and look for God's king, how God's kingdom advances in each of these verses. Chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, Submit to every human authority. Talking to the Christians, submit to every human authority whether it's a supreme leader or some delegated leader, so that you will silence the foolish talk of ignorant people. Boy, wouldn't you like to shut a few people up these days who are foolish, who say things? Um, but the, the way isn't to shout louder. The way is to submit ourselves to the human authorities. In chapter 2 and verse 18, he talks to slaves, and he tells them to obey their masters, even the harsh ones. Uh, and the motivation for doing that is commendable. It brings honor to God. He says, don't revolt against your oppressors, but imitate Christ in those kind of sufferings. 
in chapter 3 and verse 1, he tells wives to submit to unbelieving husbands and so that they, their husbands may be won over even without words. Uh, your appeal, ladies, does not come from outward beauty, but an inwardly reverent and pure heart, a gentle and quiet peacefulness. Chapter 3 and verse 7, he tells husbands to be considerate, to treat with respect and be committed to the needs of your, their wives so that their own prayers aren't hindered. You're not to show husbands, everyone who's boss, and make sure everybody knows who wears the pants in your family, but lead you with a spirit of love and respect for the precious child of God who is your bride and your family. And God says, God is the one who really wears the pants, says, I won't hear you unless you do. <laughs> your prayers are gonna be hindered. Uh, God will help you be a great husband, but we have to lead our wives and families with respect and deference to their needs. Chapter three and verse eight, he says, all of you be sympathetic. All of you who are being persecuted by the society around you, all of those who maybe didn't get a job because you're a Christian or got left, you know, last in the line for groceries because you're a Christian, people who weren't allowed to do certain things in that society because they wouldn't bow down to Caesar as Lord. Uh, he says, you, yes, even you who've been hurt, who've been wounded, who've been set back in your lives because of your faith, he says, you be sympathetic. You be compassionate and loving and humble so that you can inherit a blessing. Don't repay evil with evil. Don't repay insult for insult, but repay evil with good and insults with a blessing. You know, last week, Karina and I watched uh, the Tom Hanks movie uh, about Mr. Rogers. I forget the title exactly. But uh, it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. But there's this, uh, the storyline goes where uh, there's a kind of a jaded journalist who's interviewing, trying to do a profile on Mr. Rogers. And he's just watching him and he can't believe this guy's for real. And there's a scene where he uh, pulls uh, Mr. Rogers' wife aside and he says, you know, basically, is this guy for real? And she says, yes, he is, but he has to practice. He has to work at it. He isn't this way naturally. He's like the rest of us. He's got to work hard to put these things into practice. And I know probably none of us have aspired to be Mr. Rogers before, but you think about who he is and what an effect he's had on people, and we could all do probably a little more to, to, to aspire to that example, to work hard, to be compassionate and loving with the people around us. In all of these relationships, the Christian, whether the lower being called to submit to the authority of the higher or the higher being called to submit to the needs and the dignity of the lower, reveals the glory of God. What is it we see about God in that? What intrigues us about seeing people make themselves lower than another, about someone putting other people's interests above their own, letting another's need determine the path that you willingly take. I think we're moved by it because it reminds us of how our Creator treats us. I think it connects with us because we know somewhere inside that we were created to be like this, having been made in the image of our Creator. We know that this will build strength in our relationships, and yet it is so hard to do. It's so hard to surrender and submit ourselves. It's so hard to not take the reins and run when we feel like we're in charge. But I think there's an internal calling when we see these things that reminds us that this is how God is toward us, and this is how we're called to be towards one another. We have, we have so many great examples of this in the church. I was just thinking briefly today about 
the sisters who are in this quiet battle to win their husbands over. I think about Ling, faithful for so many years in the church before her intellectually oriented, dare I say stubborn husband, finally came to faith. Uh, or Sandy Ketch, winning over her kids and raising two faithful children as a single mom. I think about brothers stepping away from lucrative careers or worldly ambitions to meet the needs of their family better. Mark Steberg comes to mind. Uh, employees putting up with horrible bosses for the Lord's sake. Our, our young sister, new sister, Michelle Purvis comes to mind, who put up with some awful bosses uh, with a strong faith. And I think about bosses. I know we have bosses out there who are truly caring for their employees, even in this difficult time of COVID right now. These things don't go unnoticed by God and they don't go unnoticed by the world. Um, Christians are not the only ones who respond to this. It says that ignorant, outspoken authorities, foolish men won't be silenced. It says that unbelieving spouses get won over. The world takes notice when God's kingdom shines and advances. And Peter is trying to tell us that these trials, these hardships are an opportunity for God's kingdom to advance, both by refining the faith of the Christian and catching the attention of the unbeliever. While the world focuses on merely coping with trials, the faithful see experience and blessing and growth through these trials. And now we start to see what God does, how he turns every difficult thing on its head to make it work for his glory, how God uses trials to build resilience. Now, I won't kid you, resilience is one of those things you don't know you have until well after you've earned it. We're going through these trials with COVID right now and we're feeling all kinds of stuff. We're feeling anxious. Some of us are feeling despair. I'm having crazy dreams. Maybe some of you are too. I know that's anxiety in my subconscious getting a hold of me when I'm sleeping. Um, we feel trial. That's all we feel right now. Um, but God is at work in all of that. We need to remember that. The resilience that he's, that he's building in us, we won't notice for months and maybe years, but he is building that in us right now. And we need to be understanding of that so we can remain strong and faithful. You know, we lost a beautiful, resilient sister this week. Many of you know that Risa Ennis passed away after a long battle with cancer this week. And our hearts are heavy because she was the sister who inspired us with her resilience and her confidence in God and her forcefulness in her spirit. Um, she defined resilience for, for so many, certainly built through her relationship with God during the trials. Our thoughts and prayers, of course, are with Eric and all who held her dear. Um, but we can also rejoice in her victory. It's such a great story inspired by her response to trials. Don't we all want to be that faithful when those kind of trials come? Thank you, Risa. You know, it's also a familiar theme in the scriptures. Think about the people of Israel and enslaved people uh, in Egypt led through a desert to become the host nation for God's presence on earth. Think about a shepherd boy, the forgotten baby brother with five stones and a sling, takes down a giant and provides for the safety of his entire country. We think about a servant savior who is crucified in shame in order to become Lord of all. You see, these trials are meant and used by God to bring about his glory. And we need to understand that 
Our job is to endure, and we'll talk about some practicals in a minute, but our job is also to let the trials become the thing that God uses to make his light shine. It's an opportunity. We shouldn't be surprised at what God can do in trials, and we shouldn't be surprised that we can do more than we think if we stay close to him. So, what's my role in this? What does God expect me to do? Well, let's keep reading here. Look in verse 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and, sober, and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast, to him be power for be the power forever and ever. Amen. So what's my role? What do I do? I choose humility over pride, submission over rebellion, service over selfishness. We loosen our grip on our own plans and place our futures confidently in God's capable hands and then watch him work his power. So grateful for so many competent and strong and strong-willed members of the church who have humbled themselves and submitted themselves to the needs of the body and to, to the leadership of the congregation. We also act courageously. We don't give in to our fears. We hurl the darkness of our dread and our worries into the light of God's caring. We are willing to see that the stress we feel is actually a signal that we have an opportunity to respond in strength and resilience. Now, listen, I respect those of you who struggle with chronic anxiety and, and a deeper mental health issue than what I think this scripture is talking about. And I'm not trying to say in any way that you shouldn't continue to seek every uh, method and resource that you have to try and deal with uh, any kind of health issue there. But I think the common day-to-day -day anxieties that build up because we don't take them to the Father on a daily basis is what he's talking about. We need to be courageous in these things. There is so much we don't know. Even when we think we know it, we don't actually know it. We just think we know it. And so nothing is really that different because every day is a new day and we can't be assured of anything coming tomorrow. And so we act courageously. We we leave that with God. We say, into God's hands, I commit tomorrow, the next day, and the day after that, and we'll be okay. And we remember in our perseverance that the God of all grace will make us strong. He won't leave us in this state of trial, but he will come and he will make us strong and he will lift us up both now and eternally. So you gotta ask yourself, are you playing your part? Is there an area in your life where you're not humbling yourself to God's will? What anxieties and burdens have you just not let him take? Are you soberly assessing the threats and using the resources available to me? You know, I skipped a bit here. I want to go back to it. The third thing is it says we remain alert and sober. We do not ignore the threat, that roaring lion. We are aware of the devil's schemes to tempt us, to dress us down, to think we are all alone. 
We take advantage of the resources that we have around us. We show up at our small groups. We study our Bibles every day. We are constantly in prayer. I don't know if you've ever been stalked by a lion. I think I have. I'm not sure, but I think I have. Several years ago, I was out hiking by myself in the mountains here locally. Uh, I was actually scouting because I was going to go on a bow hunting trip. And uh, so I drove off, and I was probably 10 or 15 miles off a paved road, a long way from anybody, and I found this great spot, perfect, where I thought, oh, yeah, there's got to be tons of deer running around here. Let me just get out and hike and see where they are. And I started hiking out, and I got probably 100 yards from my car, and I hear this low growl. And I don't know if it was real or imagined, but to me it was real. It sounded like a mountain lion. Of course, you flash back to all those stories you hear about joggers getting attacked by mountain lions or people out hiking getting attacked, and, and I was done. I was done. I was not looking for deer anymore. I was looking for a way back to my car. You know, when you're aware of a lion, or at least you think there's one out there, you get very sober and you get very alert. And I probably freaked myself out a little bit. I probably overreacted a little bit. But tell you what, there's a heightened awareness when you know the lion is out there. We've got to be ready for that. We've got to understand that Satan is a real enemy and he battles us in these areas of pride and anxiety and wanting to run our own lives and not submit ourselves to God. And we need to be very, very strong in remembering that he's out there and that he wants us. And we need to take advantage of the resources that God's given us, our Bibles, our prayer life, our fellowship, our connection to one another. Am I playing my part? Are you being humble? Are you being taking advantage of the resources that you have? Are you casting your anxieties on God? Let's finish up the book, verse 12. He says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. So does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love and peace to all of you who are in Christ. You know, as we think about this book that we've been reading, that you know, Peter's intention is revealed right here in verse 12. He says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you. I hope you're encouraged by the book and testifying. And this is the surprising part that this is the true grace of God. That this life of trial, this life of challenge, this life of conflict in our relationship, this is the true grace of God. You know, I think sometimes we, we wish for a grace where our lives were without trial and without conflict and everything was easy and came naturally. But I don't think that's what this world is all about. I think the true grace of God is not having a life free of those things, but having the power of God to overcome those things. We can lean into these challenges. He says, stand fast in it. He means the, in the common vernacular, lean into it. Look for the opportunities that God is bringing about through these challenges. Look for the ways, the signals that these challenges and conflicts send to us to be able to rise above how society expects us to respond, how maybe our sinful natures are used to responding, and rise to, to, to respond in a way that really brings God's glory and brings the blessings of being close to the Lord. 
This is the true grace of God. Walk in it. Lean into it. See what God will do. Amen. Okay, we're going to take a moment right now to um, move into our communion. And before we do that, I want to just, I just want to mention that uh, we celebrate Memorial Day on Monday um, as a nation. And uh, some of us maybe don't even really know what Memorial Day is all about, but it was a holiday that originated shortly after the U.S. Civil War, as uh, every part of the nation had been impacted by loss. Fathers and brothers and sons killed in battle. In fact, it used to be called Decoration Day, a time when families would come together and go out to the graves and decorate uh, the graves of their dear ones, uh, to remember them, to mourn their loss, and to wrestle for meaning in it all. Easier task for some than others, I'm sure. Now, I've asked a few people around me, and not many, not many have anybody that they will mourn in this way on Monday. Um, you know, we're just, fortunately, we're, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are several steps removed from experiencing that kind of loss. Um, most of us, Memorial Day will not be a difficult day. We'll honor our fallen heroes. We'll try not to think of why they died, but that, that they died in service of us and our country. And to all of you who have lost loved ones in this way, we're grateful for your sacrifice as well. Uh, we should be, and hopefully are, a grateful nation. And it's tempting, as, as profound and, and excellent a holiday as Memorial Day is, it's tempting to view communion in that way. Just a time to mourn the loss of a Savior, maybe to ask why he died, and to remember that he died in service to us. But I don't think we should stop ourselves there. I think we need to go past that. While certainly a sober time, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that as often as we take it, we as often as we take communion, we proclaim the Lord's death again until he comes. Now, you don't proclaim things that you're mourning. You proclaim things you're fired up about. Why would we proclaim it unless his death was something great? The culmination of God's plan. Again, it's God's upside-down kingdom where he doesn't do what we expect and he doesn't play by the rules that all of us down here play by. In God's mind, the death of Jesus was the culmination of his plan, not just collateral damage to a battle here on earth. Certainly it was physically horrible. I don't want to make light of that. But we're not, and we're not proclaiming that. But we are proclaiming the exaltation of our king, the coronation day of our king. It didn't happen like it happens in the world. There's no golden crown or fur robes or stepping up onto a big throne so you could rise above all the audience. It happened God's upside-down way. Crown of thorns. A robe used to intensify pain. And not, a, and not a throne, but a cross to be lifted up onto for all the world to see and to mock. We take bread and wine, these elements, to physically connect with the cost of his spilt blood and the commitments of this new covenant we have in his love. We remember with gratitude all that needed to be done for us. But let's also, in our hearts and with our mouths, proclaim that our King Jesus reigns and will come again. Let's go to God in prayer for our communion. Father, thank you so much for the power of the death of your Son, 
Thank you that in your upside down way, you take something that is horrible to us and terrifying to us and turn it into something that glorifies you and lifts your name up for everybody to see and to admire. God, thank you that you've saved us through the act of your son dying on the cross for us. Thank you that you installed him as our king in, in the eternal world that we all will join someday. God, thank you that we can take these elements now and remember what it means to be in his kingdom. Father, help us to submit ourselves to you in every way. Help us to cast our anxieties on you and help us to be sober and alert for this devil that prowls around to take our faith away. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.